Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have a guest, Christian Wiley, the general manager of Bodega Garzon from Uruguay. And we're going to be talking about the introduction or the education and introduction of Uruguay and Tanat on the global wine scene. Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Robert. Great to be here with you and Peter. We are just actually finished harvesting here in Garzon. So I have some time to talk about Tanat <laughs> with pleasure. Great. I just wonder if you give a little personal history and background around Bodega Garzon. Okay, so on the personal note, I'm actually, I was born in Chile from a British family and um, boarding school in England. And I did, I studied agricultural engineering in Chile, a Catholic university. And then I finished studying in UC Davis, uh, winemaking enology. I was a hands-on full-time winemaker for a couple of vintages. I worked as, you know, very cheap labor in Mondavi for a harvest. And then uh, back in Chile with Carmen, I was very much into biodynamics and stuff. In the mid-90s, uh, we worked with there with Alvaro Espinosa and also with their partners at the time, which is uh, FETS. I went my own direction being an entrepreneur, producing culinary herbs on the gastronomy side, exporting jet fresh to the States and to, into England. It was the, the year I've made more money in my life and also the year I lost more money in my life. So <laughs> I came back to wine into a producer in Chile called De Martino, which is known for the high-end quality wines. And at the time, I was invited to play rugby here in a sevens tournament in Punta del Este, in Uruguay, which I guess for every Latin American guy is kind of a dream. It's the ultimate place to be for the beautiful people and the great uh, parties and all <laughs> that. So at the age of almost 25, I came here to play rugby and, and met the love of my life. So my wife is Uruguayan and hence the, the connection to, to Uruguay. So I can't be totally objective on my feelings for Uruguay or, or Tanat. But I got married here in February 2000 and everything was set to go back to live in Chile. But I liked it so much here and the quality of the people, the culture. You know, I thought I'd give it a, a shot at working here in, in Uruguay. And I landed a, a job in what was at the time the best producer, which is the Deicas family in Canelones. I, I worked with them for almost six years. And that was fun because that was the first, you know, the first half of, of my match in, in Uruguay. That was at the time, it was really obscure. I mean, I didn't know that Tanat was a great after studying pornography <laughs> in UC Davis and being a winemaker from Chile. I'd never heard about it. And the first time I was challenged about Tanat, it was my father-in-law. And I asked him, you know, in, in which soccer team Tanat played. So I didn't even know it was a game. <laughs> that was 20 years ago or a bit more. So I had to, you know, break the ice and do a lot of things to get drinkable Tanats and to export Tanat. And we, we worked at the times with Michel Roland and Peter Bright, a few other people. And then I was headhunted back to Chile invited in a very cool project to help an old lady from the 19th century into the 21st century is the Santa Carolina group in the mid 20s probably the best producer of quality and volume in Chile when i landed that job at the end of 2005 it was 
not even in the top 10. And I think I, I brought in the first laptop. They didn't know that bottles had moved into 750 instead of just 700. So that was, that was a hell of a challenge. I was with them for 11 vintages, and it was a total revolution from you know vineyards, wineries. We made very good wines in Alto Uco. We started companies in the States and China. And I left the winery with you know twenty percent of Ipta, three times bigger, and and the New World Winery of the Year at the time was Santa Carolina in two thousand fifteen, because I was headhunted by Mr. Bulgheroni, who when their secretaries called, they said, "Hey, hold on line for Mr. Bulgheroni." It's like, who? I googled <laughs> it quickly, and uh, it said he was a big Argentinian uh, energy tycoon. And when he eventually came on the phone, it's like, hey, you know, I, I love wine. I, I'm not my cup of tea working in energy. And even if you are the biggest producer of renewable energy, I'm all about wine. And he said, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I have this project. <laughs> so he starts talking and, and what he's done or what he, what he was doing really, you know, spiked my interest. And I came to see how they were developing Garzon. And at the beginning of 2016, I became full-time employee for Alejandro Bulgeroni here in Bodega Garzón as the general manager or CEO or managing director, the executive position, but also working with this other, at the time, there was another 14 estates in four countries. Mm -hmm. Today he has uh, 21 estates in six countries. And his vision was for Garzón to be the headquarter. So intriguing, he had invested uh, heavily in Tuscany, in Bordeaux, in Napa, and in Mendoza, Barossa. But, you know, his vision was that Garzón was going to be the, the headquarter, the main player. So I guess that would be me, happily married still to the same Uruguayan lady. Our daughter was born here in Uruguay. Our son was born in Chile. So you could say that the, the gents are Chilean and the ladies are, are <laughs> Uruguayans and they were the fans, you know. The Uruguayans, they have a lot of character. So Garzón officially opened in what year? This is my sixth harvest here. Garzón started planting vineyards in 2008. The actual winery where, where I am right now was inaugurated in 2016. Got it. The, in between, there's a lot of history of they were making wine in a smaller plant that we, was used originally to make olive oil. But I'll use that to tell you a little bit about Garzón. So Garzón is, a, is actually a, a place, a municipality. It is the northeasternmost municipality of the province of Maldonado. Uruguay is divided in 19 provinces. Maldonado is the one further southeast where you have Punta del Este, which would equate to Europe's Ibiza or maybe, you know, you guys, Miami or L.A., and as you go on the coast northeast, you have a really quaint, very hippie chic town called Jose Ignacio, which would be like the Hamptons or Saint Tropez. We are, as the crow flies, we're only 10 miles inland from Jose Ignacio. The owner, the Familia Bulgheroni, started buying land here in 1999, 2000, and they first concentrated on planting olive trees to produce extra virgin olive oil. And they have done really well. They have, they have close to 7,000 acres of olive trees and 
the production output of some of the best extra virgin olive oils from South America, from the Southern Hemisphere. They've won like the best extra virgin olive oil in, in the world, if you like. In 2006, Mr. Bulgaroni decided to buy the property, you know, the hills that he saw from the vineyards, from the olive trees. And that was the sierras, like little mountains, little hills for windmills, for eolic mm -hmm. energy. His wife challenged the investment. She's like, well, you have all these power plants, all these windmills everywhere. This is the view from the house. Eh, don't put, don't put windmills. <laughs> so anyway, of course, love wins. And uh, he started asking around what could he do with this land he'd already bought. It's about 3,000 acres. And the agronomists uh, from the other crops basically said to him, sir, it's, it's a boulder of rock. It's, it's like really old granite. It's facing south to the Atlantic and to, if you like, Antarctica. It's cold. It's wet. There's huge biodiversity here. Maybe vineyards. That could be the only thing we could recommend because of the slopes and everything. And very poor soils. So Mr. Bulgaroni interviewed different wine consultants at the time. We hit it off really well with Alberto Antonini, who I, I was following and I knew of from the industry. And basically, Alberto was here for Easter 2007 and kind of scouted the place, the terroir. And long story short, we are latitude 34.8 south, which means we're in the same latitude as Apalta in Chile, as Hualtayari in Argentina, as Granach in Barossa Valley or, or Stellenbosch. So we're basically in the premium Southern Hemisphere wine belt location. We're obviously fully Atlantic Ocean influence, which is very different from the other producers of Uruguay. They're mostly closer to Montevideo or even closer to Colonia, which is warmer river plate influence with clay soils versus granite. So, you know, one of the holy grails of, of great terrars is decomposed uh, meteorized granite, Atlantic humidity, and long story short again, great biodiversity. Alberto <laughs> recommended that, yeah, you could make wine here probably and suggested to do a little trial. But anyway, what you, you probably have seen on the pictures, uh, which do not do credit to this place, is the trial. We basically, we have, Don Alejandro said, okay, I'm, I won't do, you know, I won't plant an acre of four different varieties to see how it works. I hired you because you're the best in the world and you say, yes, we'll do it. I'll take the risk. So what you see today, what you see here is we have more than 1,500 parcels or little lots. It's around 600 acres of net vineyards, but they are separated by roads, by rocks, by palm trees, by lakes. It's very hilly, the little colinas. And it's basically, there's planted more than 20 different grape varieties. Mainly Tanat on the reds, mainly Alvarino on the whites. Started planting in 08. In, by 2010, the first trial harvest, the quality was outstanding, or the promise of the potential was outstanding. And Antonini meant, you know, told Don Alejandro and... Mr. Bulgaroni decided to build Bodega Garzón. And Bodega Garzón, well, it's a five-acre building built on top of the hill, respecting the lay of the land. 
It's the first winery that has all of the facilities lead certified in the world. It's, it's the only one outside the U.S. So it, it was all done, you know, following the Green Council building protocols. And it's quite a sight from architecture, proportions. I remember back in Chile when La Postol, when Gran Marnier family built La Postol, Closa Palta, everybody was like, oh my God, you know, they spent like 50 euros per liter, like, which is insane from an architecture <laughs> construction point of view. Here, if you do the math, it's twice that. So <laughs> it's impressive and it's actually really well integrated to the place. So I guess that's a really long intro to what I, who, who I am and what more or less what is Garzon, but I can, you know, I can tell you, go answering your questions or whatever you prefer. So how big is the Uruguayan wine industry today? You mentioned Garzon is 600 planted acres. How big is the entire industry? The entire industry is, is 6,000 hectares, which is more like... 15,000 acres or yeah, something like that. Yeah. But a lot of it is table wines. Mm-hmm. So Garzon is about Garzon is about twenty percent of what Uruguayans refer to VCP Vino de Calidad Preferente, which would be like premium wines that have more than twelve and a half percent of alcohol and have a lot of different quality standards, and they have to be only in seven fifty bottles. And so we're about twenty percent of that, but we are three times our output is three times the top of the pyramid of Uruguay, so of the market. So if you say wine's above $10 in, in Uruguay, we produce three times that. So we have a different approach to market, meaning we, in general, exports are about 5 10% for a winery. For us, exports are two-thirds of the game. Hmm. Because oh, we, we're, we're, only, we're only producing premium quality. We don't have any entry level. Or There may be many of our listeners who don't even know where Uruguay is or that it produces wine. It was actually very funny. I once had an interview with a general manager of a winery. I won't give his, his name. But I said, oh, he said, have you been and visited wineries? And one of the places I mentioned was Uruguay and, you know, to not there. And it's like, they don't make wine in Uruguay. I'm like, um, yes, I'm pretty sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. And he just kept going on it. And I was like, oh, I don't know what to do here, man. But <laughs> it's true. How many wineries are there in Uruguay today? And how many of them qualify under this premium category? Well, there's about 300 producers, wineries. I would say within VCP, there's probably 60. Hmm. And exporting actively, there's probably 25 wineries. Hmm. Um, Uruguay is small for Latin American or for American standards, the size of a country, but it's actually bigger than the island of England. But it's dwarfed between Argentina and Brazil which are massive, and it's on the Atlantic coast. So if you can picture on the map Buenos Aires, the capital of, of Argentina, okay, across the river plate, you take have Montevideo, you take a ferry, and then if you keep going east, you get to Punta del Este, which is where we are. And again, it's like the same latitude south as Santiago de Chile, 
Adelaide or Cape Town, it's kind of the same latitude. So I, I'm curious, like how Tanat became, because you know we're, we want to focus on Uruguay and Tanat, how Tanat became the national grape for red wine in Uruguay. Because even Tanat as a major red grape variety isn't really known. And, and you know, obviously its ancestral home of Mataran is known only by wine geeks and people studying wine. It's not, it's not something that you really see too many places. Do you know like how did that make it there? And 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 I'm curious then how is it maybe different in terms of the expression versus what we see in Maduron? Yeah, it's an unknown country unless you're talking soccer or beef, and it's not a very known variety, which is mostly due to most what is better known about Europe are the places, are the denominations of origin, not necessarily the grapes. And Madiran is an obscure denomination of origin anyway. The French grape varietals were brought into Uruguay, more or less the same time as Chile in the mid-19th century, the 1850s, 1870s. The difference here is that the gentleman that brought the best material was a French Basque immigrant, Pascual Arriague. Actually, the grape, Tanat, because nobody knew it, it was called Arriague for a long time. Hmm. And then ampelographers said, no, Arriague is the name of the guy that brought it. This is <laughs> Tanat. I don't know exactly why, it is the champion grape of Uruguay or the signature grape of Uruguay. From my observation and experience, I think it's a little bit because of survival of the fittest. You have a climate where it came in the west of the country and up of the river Uruguay, Colonia and Salto. Those places are hot and humid. And I'm guessing that Tanat gave the vignerons a good amount of kilos and a decent wine every year. Whereas in those conditions, you just simply lose Cabernet Sauvignon mm. and Merlot is tricky. So none of the dry climate grapes like a Syrah or a Malbec strive here. So I think it's a little bit of a survival of the fittest. If, you, if you're just a grower, after 100 years, you figure out you better plant Tanat because you'll have more decent harvests on average. Because Alvarino for the white wines makes a lot of sense because in Portugal and Galicia, that grape does really well in that humidity and that kind of like more tropical climate. I, I, I was just wondering, like, Tanat is, is more inland and I guess it's a thicker skin too. It probably survives in humidity pretty well. Yes. Yeah, it does have a thicker skin. It does have a lot of color. And if you are producing table wines, if you're not in, imagine the end of the 19th century, there wasn't really like really high-end wines, not even for church. So if you're getting kilos and you're getting color and you're getting sugar, you're in business. Got it. Well, here, it's not tropical at all. It's more Mediterranean. The latitudes, it is, it is warmer than Madirano or Bordeaux. Madirano is quite near Bordeaux. It's south of Bordeaux. Yeah. But it's halfway between Bordeaux and, and Biarritz, if you like, or it's halfway to the Pyrenees. I believe that here, in general, Tanat in Uruguay, is a little bit easier on the tannins. The name of Tanat comes from tannins. It is the grape that has the most polyphenols and it's known as, you know, nature's botox or the very healthy grape because it has 2.3 or 2.4 more times resveratrol than a Cabernet Sauvignon. And you remember the French paradox in the mid nineties, they were like, what's going on? These people, in the southwest of France, eat foie gras, magret, and French fries, and, and they're fine because they're drinking very tannic or very, very intense 
red wines. Well, Tanat is the champion of those great varieties. Here, there's more sunlight than in Madiran. Madiran is latitude, like, I think it's 39 north. So we are 34. So you have more color, better polyphenols. And the, the wines are a little bit rounder. The, the weather is a little bit friendlier. If you compare Galicia and Madiran are relatively similar on that part of the Atlantic. But it, what you have is a lot of rain and the variety adapted better. What is the big difference here in Garzón to the traditional tanats of Uruguay, which, okay, they're not as beasts or so, so tannic that they have to be 10 years in a bottle in the cellar like in Madiran. But they are big monsters and they're quite rustic, the, the historic traditional. What happens here is because we have this much cooler climate, we have more rain than, than Bordeaux, we have the hills and we have granite, we have excellent drainage, percolation, runoff, and wind coming from the Atlantic. So, so we have a very healthy environment for growing grapes. And Garzón Tanat, it's actually even friendlier and actually very fruity, very fresh, super vibrant. And we've learned how to make Tanat in the sense that when to pick it is very important. How to vinify it is also very important. So from beast in Madiran, uh, Chateau Montius or whatever that you can't touch for 10 years, you come to the southwest of Uruguay, it's big, it's rustic, it's not very sexy, but it's easier to drink. And then you get to, to Garzón where the drinkability is amazing. There's balance, there's freshness, and it's part of the reasons why we're doing so well. So what are the various styles of Uruguayan Tanat outside of, you know, there is the sort of more traditional around Canelones and Garzón and Punta de Este. But, are, you know, I know and I've heard and I've tried some that are made with some semi-carbonic maceration. Do people use oak? Like, just what are the, the range of the major styles of Uruguayan Tanat? Until, until Garzón came to Uruguay, because there's, uh, there's definitely... And before and after Garzón. I was here in between 2000 and 2005 when Deikas was big and Deikas was investing in Canelones and those technology was very serious, but it was different. I would say in general, the wines were being made with overripe fruit, over extraction, very long skin contact, and a lot of oak and mostly American heavy toast. So if you like very traditional very heavy, very difficult to figure out the place. Not much varietal expression left. Uh, versus what we do here is, is as little intervention as possible. We don't overripe the fruit. We avoid long skin contact. We actually do carbonic maceration of skin contact before fermenting cold soak. We are only fermenting in cement without epoxy. We're only using... French oak from the north, from Allier, with untoasted and big bats. So you're really tasting the place and not the oak or the seeds or the alcohol. So it's a very different style. So just for listeners, in terms of when they see an Uruguayan red wine, like the chance of that being majority or mostly Tanat is pretty high, or are there other grape varieties that people would think of with Uruguayan red wines? If they think of Uruguay, it's probably Tanat. Okay. But we do have really stunning Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, 
They're here in Garzón. You can actually ripen very nicely Cab Sauvignon. We have excellent Marcelan, which it's a little bit of, a, you know, if you want to make it even more difficult to figure it out. But we have 100% Marcelan. We're exporting to the States. And it is a little bit of a variety of the future uh, since it's the main planted variety in China. The Chinese know it very well. And it's also now one of the varieties for Bordeaux. But it does really well here. So we do have quite a few. We have good Merlots. But obviously, I think Tanat is the, the reference. Got it. So in terms of Uruguay and Tanat, like where are the key markets? You said that about two-thirds of the wines are that you're producing are for the export market. I'm curious on where are those going? Where are the major markets? And then we can go from there. Yeah. Obviously, the main market for us is still Uruguay. We have become like, uh, I think it's two out of five bottles of premium wine in, in Uruguay are drunk or garçon. But it's also very important for us like we have a sustainability philosophy in production. We have a experiences philosophy when it comes to, you know, learning about the wine. We have a great hospitality center here, top restaurant with Francis Malman, like Decanter Magazine, best restaurant in a winery in the world. Last, uh, in 2019 was Bodega Garzón. So this is a place you really, if you experience Garzón here, you know, it's a bit of a cliche that you, make the bond when you visit the winery, but this is amazing. So for us, still Uruguay is, is the main market, but it's not more than a third of the business. Exports, now with the pandemia and everything, uh, the States is our number one market, then Brazil. And I would put like in the same league, what we do in Uruguay, in the States and Brazil. Those are our three biggest markets. And then... We are actually exporting to more than 50 countries already, but I would pull together the Nordics. We do really well with Sweden, with Finland, with Norway, and to a certain degree with Denmark. They have uh, monopolies and they are always bringing to their consumers the latest or the newest and as sustainable as possible and all that. So combined, we do really well there in the Nordics. And then it would be similar in similar levels Japan UK Canada the Netherlands Holland and then opening up and growing you would have China Korea Singapore Mexico Russia etc so it's more than 50 markets so I, I was a little surprised to hear that the US was in a similar vein as Brazil when I was in Uruguay 10 plus years ago Brazil was like the main export market. There's domestic consumption in Brazil and U.S. was very small. Has that been a recent thing or is that? Yeah, it's, it's very much a, a Garzón thing. I think Garzón is, I can send you the, the stats, but I think Garzón is 70% of the exports to the States. And okay. we've gone from zero to almost 30,000 cases of 12 in three or four years. And we are the only ones actively developing the market and with good turn, with good depletions are growing three digits. We now have the wines in Whole Foods. We have the wines are doing really well through wine.com. We have a good footprint in pretty much all the states and, and the brand is doing really well, not just Tanat, but Alvarino, the Pinot Noir Rosé, the other great varieties as well. But so then as a country, 
most U.S. because of Garzon is at the top as one of the top export markets? Because of Garzon, it's at the second place. The first place is wow. still Brazil. Okay. But Brazil is tricky. You have to you have to look at the stats because if you cap the price per bottle, mm-hmm. like at exports three dollars a bottle, then Brazil is not very big. There, there's a co-op in the south of Brazil that ships a lot of wine. There's a producer here that does a lot of business with regional supermarkets, and it's not really what we want to be known for, you know, like cheap supermarket wine. If you take that out, Garzón is by far the biggest player in Brazil as well. Got it. I thought it was interesting that the Uruguayan culture was similar to Argentina in terms of drinking their domestic products as, you know, it's a little bit different than maybe Chile, where it's mostly an export region, where the, and the only, and not on the premium side. They're not, Chile doesn't seem like it drinks its premium wines as often as maybe Argentina does. And it's interesting to hear that in Uruguay, that Uruguay wines are also consumed domestically quite a bit as well. Yeah, it, Uruguay is only three and a half million people. And for every person here, there's four cows. <laughs> the number one, the number one industry is beef, and it's exporting quality product. It's like the number one imported beef origin in China, I think, which is very, very strict. But so they drink a lot of wine with the beef. But it's also they have a common joke here, where you know they say the Chileans descend from the Mapuches, or the Peruvians from the Incas. They say the Uruguayans descend from ships. They're all immigrants. They're all Spanish, Italian, Mediterranean, French. So they have a big culture of drinking wine. I hear the per capita consumption has dropped to half, but it's still more than 33 liters per capita. It's high, the consumption per capita. What has been, what has been spectacular is the paradigmas or this, you know, people take for granted, like in Uruguay, they don't drink white wine. And if they do, they don't pay more than five bucks. One of our champion grapes wines here is the Alvarino Reserva, which is $15 and it's killing it. It's, it's just, they're drinking it. So they know what's good and, then, and they pay for it. It's a discerning right. palate. And all of a sudden, Uruguayans used to import and buy Chilean Cabernet Sauvignon or Argentinian Malbec for the round velvety reds. And now they're drinking Garzón. They drink local because we are making wines that are approachable, easy to drink. So we've been really well received by the local palates as well. We have a pretty good share of liver, if you like, at the, <laughs> at the top end. They got the, the premium liver. <laughs> got it. <laughs> so in terms of the, the export markets, what are the, does that, you mentioned Brazil and the U.S. and, and the Nordic countries and, and Asia. I'm curious on the price points, like you, because you make multiple wines. I'm curious if the, if you start to see reception of different price points or different quality levels of wines to different markets, and if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, our entry level is we call it estate, the estate range. They're normally estate blends, it's like a Tanat Merlot or Sauvignon Blanc blend with other grapes, and that is. That we actually don't export to the States. We start on the Reserva tier. So we're all about positioning luxury. And if you want an aspirational producer from Uruguay, it sounds crazy. It sounds tough, but it actually is. I was a really good friend, quite close to Stephen Sparrier. And, and he was always tasting and enjoying Garzón. And he was really keen. 
I actually asked him what he thought about Garzón before I made the decision to come here. And he was like, what I'm tasting, the wines are beautiful. This was back in 2014, 15. He was here last January and January 2020, before the, the pandemic. And he was very impressed. He was, you know, really more than what he had tasted. He really, really hit it on with the place and people and the quality of the wines and the food. And he wrote a quote that I thought it was amazing. He said, Eduardo Chadwick from, you know, from Rasuris and Senya, as well as Nicolás Catena from Catena, would agree that it takes more than a generation to achieve iconic status for their wineries. And he says, Garzón achieved it in under a decade. So, because you know, I can tell you as many things as I can talk to you for hours, but until you come and see it, you probably won't believe it. But I've been called a liar by important people that when they come here, they say, oh, you're lying. I was like, why? You didn't tell me it was like this. I tried, but uh, <laughs> you, have, you have to see it. You have to live it. It's fantastic. And we are trying always to position higher and higher the premiumization of the mix is always very important for us to take the consumers and to take their positioning in the markets as high as possible. The way the portfolio is designed is entry level is only, of course, our own fruit, estate grown, because we are 200 kilometers from any other vineyard. And we are basically like a new 21st century terroir. Then we have Reserva, which is more to do with the quality of the grapes. It's got nothing to do with the aging of the oak or anything. Then we have single vineyard, which... It is, if you like, a single property, but there are areas that have a singularity. For example, the Alvarinos facing due south with a, you know, with quite a bit of slope. That would be a singularity for Alvarino, and Tanax the other way around, facing north. Then we have a range called Peticlo, which is just one parcel, and it's something that we find absolutely striking and stunning, and it doesn't blend. It's always better by itself. And we have a, a top wine, which is called Balasto, which Balasto here is the name they use for the meteorized granite, for the decomposed granite. So between the rock and sand, it's like little pebbles. That's the Balasto. And that is a assemblage of the best reds of the different parcels. That is a wine that I'm not sure if you if you know or not, but it's, it's one of the very few wines. It was actually the third wine from South America to make it into the Place de Bordeaux. So it's traded through okay. Negociants. And that is something that a little bit of a dream or a crazy Chilean guy came here and said, hey, you got what it takes. Let's do it. No, the owner didn't even know what Negociants were. <laughs> and Antonini was like, ah, maybe not yet. Are you sure? And anyway, we made it in without ticking any of the boxes because obviously it's not from Bordeaux, it's not Bordeaux grapes, it's not Chateaux, but we're dancing that, we're in that party. And that helps a lot for positioning and for reputation of the producer. For sure. And it sounds like Garzon has done a lot with its unique perspective, its unique site, its unique brand to elevate Uruguay overall and in general. How does the entire Uruguay industry think about how does it promote Uruguayan Tanat versus Garzon separate or any individual winery or brand separately? Well, we talk about Garzon. One, one of the things Robert said is how do, you, how do you sell it? How do you present it in the market? Yep. We talk about Garzon. And actually, 
it's even before that. We let people taste the wine, try to make an idea of what they think it is and what they think it's worth. And uh, they normally tell you, ah, this could be 50 bucks. I like it. It's round. And then you talk about, you know, the property and the project and they're like, wow. And then all of a sudden being from Uruguay, it's like an advantage. If you come in and you say, talk, talk, I want you to taste this tanat from Uruguay, they'll be like, no, dude, I've never heard of either. I don't have time. So you have to be strategic about how you, you approach it. In general, I started Wines of Uruguay 20 years ago myself with a few other producers with Pisano and because we were, you know, exporting and we made a menu or we made a shelf, but it just didn't turn. And we had to go back to the drawing board. We had problems with the styles of the wines, but also the origin. No one knew anything about it. And still today, there's a board called INAVI, the Institute of National Vitiviniculture. Instituto Nacional de Vitivinicultura, and they have all the stats of who's producing what and selling where, and they are responsible for the generic positioning of wines of Uruguay, where, you know, you go into a wine show in Vinexpo or Vinitali or ProVine, or you do like a Tanat tour in LA and Chicago and Miami. And obviously that's, you know, democracy and They can't really only promote the best wines, they have to promote everybody. I think a lot, most of the producers were very scared from For Garzon coming in with a level of investment. This project, the capital expenditure, the CapEx, is close to $200 million already. It's it's, uh, for 120,000 cases of wine. There's a vision behind it. There's There's a billionaire's club here. There's a real estate project. There's a PGA Tour preferred golf course here. So there's, there's a lot going on, more than just the wine. But, you know, it is mind-boggling and it's difficult to assimilate or digest when you're a small producer. And it's very threatening when you are, you know, when you own the category or you have been a famous brand for a while, all of a sudden you're no longer in the podium or you're no longer big or you're no longer great. And it's tough. But I think because I know most of the guys from the industry, I tell them, you know, we're not here to kill your business. We're here to export. We're here to raise the bar. And and what's happening is very interesting. Like Antonini always compares it to Mendoza, where most of the wines were being made east of the city towards Buenos Aires in Maipú. And now most of the vineyards are up towards the mountains. Here, most of the vineyards are in the south center, southwest. But after Garzón came to develop Garzón here in Maldonado, today there's more than 15 projects happening. So some are the big producers from Canelones that are here, Deicas, Bosa. Others are, there's a Japanese investor that is in Uruguay for ice. They have a vineyard. There's people from Brazil, they have a vineyard. There's an American that has a vineyard. So quite dynamic. So I'm curious on how, you know, obviously as you're raising the bar for the Tanat, as you step people through looking at the Reserva Tanat is, you know, sub $20. Then you start to go into the single vineyard is around 30. The Petit Clos is going up to around 70. And then the Balasto, I think I said that, is, you know, closer to $100. Like there's a, is your goal to 
when you're going to educate to consumers, like at the first point, just like hit them with really good quality for the money at the entry level and then step them through and working your way up to that? Or are they fundamentally different marketing, like marketing that Petit Clo or the Balasto to people? Are they, those are totally different demographics for you guys. How do you think about that? We're building Garçon as it is. We're in Uruguay. <laughs> it, being here is almost like an anchor. If this project was in Napa or in Bordeaux, it would be like the best thing ever in, in the galaxy or whatever. But we're in Uruguay. So Uruwat, Uruwear, and then Tanat, Tanat tonight, and Tata what? So, you know, we build Garçon and we keep it luxury. We keep it aspirational. We play the scarcity game at every level. And we are at this stage, we, we are over delivering, I would say, even in Balasto. Balasto here sells for $200. Uh, oh. In the states, because of whatever the, I think it was, I think it was the dot com that started playing it down, and and it it should be at one fifty, sometimes one twenty. You can find it for ninety nine, ninety nine. But in general, we, it's more about the experience. It's a lot about finding something new, which is super genuine from the place. It's super sustainable from a philosophy point of view, and it's not just about wine. It's about a destination. It's about, you know, super top gastronomy. So you, you you find, you have Francis Malman, you have the best episode of Chef's Table. We have this pilot with Amazon Prime, it's called, it starts with wine. And it's like 27 minutes of Malman and Alberto Antonini, which is the top of the, you know, the top of the pyramid of winemakers, at least for me, nice guys and guys that can explain themselves. And he's not looking to build his signature name is his his philosophy is to express the place all of a sudden there's this like the best chef in latin america one of the best winemakers in the world discovering garçon with a billionaire from the energy business totally committed to nature and to sustainable development we have a pro golfer that's won the the masters and the, and the pga and the us open and all of a sudden you have this golf course that's the only PGA Tour preferred golf course outside the U.S. Olive oil. There's so many things going on here that it's fun, you know, and, and people discover one thing and another thing. And, okay, they may come here for the beach or they may come here for Malman or they may come here for whatever reason. And all of a sudden, wow, this Pinot Noir Rosé is it's like it's even better than the sunsets and the sunsets are killer. <laughs> and the Alvarino is amazing with the seafood or the octopus. and and the tanat cleans your palate and we're, you know, we're doing the asados. It's like you light up the logs, you light up the fire at midday and it keeps going until midnight. So, you know, we eat the whole cow, but your palate is clean with tanat and the tannins and, and the acidity. And it's a, it's a whole experience. It's, it's a lot of fun. I don't know if I answered the question, but I, I just... Yeah, no, it. it's just interesting to, like, on that side for the U.S., like, the Reserva is, is a really great quality for the money, especially when you compare it to anything domestic. And I think that's a huge selling point. But as you start to work up, it was the same thing, like, Argentina and Chile to, like, trying to, to market a $100 plus wine for an area that, for a grape that's maybe even lesser known than some of what the Malbec or Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm just wondering what that hurdle is. How do you, like, how what is that sales pitch like to, to the Psalms and the wine buyers of, like, how they should be experiencing these ultra premium wines from Garcon? Well, first of all, I, I worked in Chile and I worked in Argentina and I was 
the first thing I told people here is we've got to avoid the value trap, the, you know, the cutthroat varietals. Yeah. Which is all they had here. They had four whites, a red and a rosé varietals. And they were fighting varietals at eleven ninety nine, nine ninety nine. I said, forget it. That's not going to work. You will never be able to compete that with the volume and the capacity or even the category. Because part of the problem with Uruguay is that people, some buyers, especially if they're not wine people, they look at numbers, they look at categories, and they're like, oh, why should I carry this? There's no category. So I mentioned in the case of the States, I said, you know what? $20 is growing. We have the value if you compare with California. Absolutely. We are probably... It's interesting, probably some known brands from Chile and Argentina at 20 bucks perhaps are even better, but they have the weight of the category and they just don't, they're not successful. The other thing, which is what you, we do talk about all the time, is the profile of the liquid. The wine has very high drinkability. All, the, all of the Garçon wines make your mouth water. They have natural acidity here. It's, this is much more if you like, a bridge between old world and new world. So we have the fruit, but we have the natural acidity, we have the balance and the minerality. So the wines feel more European, more easier to drink, more gastronomic. They're not just fruit bombs with a lot of alcohol from dry climates, which would be, if you would be, you know, to describe a general description of Chile or Argentina. So the wines are very easy to drink. And once people taste them, they come back for more. Once people learn about the project, they want to know more. And I think if Garzón was built, you know, 10 years earlier, it probably wouldn't be as successful because we have banked very heavily in social media. And now you can get to the final consumer. 10 years ago, forget it. 20 years ago, no way. You had to have millions and millions of dollars to put billboards and stuff or TV or whatever. Now, you, if you are, you know, if you have the right values and philosophy and you have a quality product, you have a genuine story and you, you know, we have like 80,000 interactive followers with uh, Instagram and that helps, you know, that helps people discover us. We have a very dynamic website and I think that has been a big plus of the times. Now, tough buyers, people that master some or Master of Wine, the States or UK, that, okay, they buy all this, they listen to you, they agree to you, but they don't pull the trigger. We invest, for me, the best strategy is bringing them here, what you call like a reverse mission. Invest, instead of me going to knock on the door of the buyer of Wegmans or Safeway or whatever, or Wine.com or Bounty Hunter, I invite them here. And then they realize the potential, they believe in, you know, in, in the dream and, and they find ways of bringing the wines to the market and letting people experiment. So it's a combination of knowing the market, having a strategy of doing things right. I think if you rush, you're going to hit a wall very quickly. We work together with our importer. We work together with a wholesaler. We bring the decision makers here. We work together with Wine Spectator, with Wine Enthusiast. You know, Balasto is in, in the category of the wine, what's it called? The Critics' Choice Award. So we are at the New York Wine Experience. And we're mm -hmm. at the Grand Tour of Wine Spectator. So people 
used to taste, you know, in those venues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Robert and I have had it several times at some of like the suckling tastings in San Francisco, yes. right? The great wines of the Andes. Yes. It sounds like your strategy is kind of a from both ends, building the end consumer demand with social media primarily, and then creating the opportunity for them to buy through bringing the buyers to Uruguay and, and getting it into there. Because once you have that end consumer demand, it's much easier for buyers to say, okay, because they know it's going to sell, right? Yeah. Now we have like Nielsen figures, mm-hmm. which are amazing because we have enough traction and, mm-hmm. and we can sit down and talk to a, a buyer that used to buy Clorox that's buying wine and showing the figures. Before, we didn't have that. But it is getting the, the story out through social media, bringing the right people here, the bridge between us, GNC, Glodo Need, they've been our PR company since the opening for five, six years. And they've brought people, not just wine, you know, Playboy magazine, golf magazines, architecture magazines, all kinds of different walks of life. Rob reports been here, New York Times, and the awareness that we exist. And also in the wine critics, be the New World Winery of the Year puts you on the map. Mid-90s, several wines from James Suckling, as well as Josh Green with Wine and Spirits, as well as the Cantor, as well as Wine Spectator. All of a sudden, they're like, okay, it's not just one. There's something going on here. So because it's Uruguay, some consumers need that. Obviously, you guys don't, but a lot of consumers need that that reinforcement of the objective accolade or... Mm-hmm. The <laughs> third-party validation. Third-party yeah. validation. There you go. That's what I was trying to say. And at the end of the day, I think there's also some level of energy here, which is pretty cool. The Uruguayans are, you know, they're like a little bit like like the New Zealanders in the sense that they have a lot of character. They're winners when it comes to soccer, even though their neighbors are Brazil and Argentina. They still have. Uruguay has won more America's soccer cups than anybody, any other country. And that's, that's incredible. And they have this great attraction, which is Punta del Este and the Uruguayan Riviera and the beef, which is grass fed. But we, for me, I, I used to be in this big role in this big group in Chile, more than 4 million cases. You know, my wife would say, you're no longer, you know, you're no longer a winemaker. You're counting bottles or something. Here in Garzón, it's like I connected back to to why I came into wine, you know, nature and people and passion, and we have a great team. And that, I think, is perceived. We have a Uruguayan winemaking lady that lives in Seattle with her husband, and she's like the brand champion ambassador for the States, a lot of passion. So we've, we've been doing hundreds of Zooms and trainings and tastings and seminars online with Antonini myself or the winemaker or Mele. So keeping the brand alive and trying to survive this pandemic. Well, it sounds like you guys are very well positioned on multiple fronts. With every guest, Christian, we always ask them to identify a lasting trend in a fizzing fan. So a lasting trend is something that you you see progressing and keep growing over time with Uruguay Tanat. And then something you'd say is a fizzing fad, something you see that was popular, but you think is is kind of fizzling away and not going to be as longstanding with Uruguay Tanat. Well, I think it's going to be more and more producers here in, in Maldonado on the Atlantic coast. 
even Rocha, which is further northeast. That's going to be the long-term trend for sure. I see a lot of producers picking Tanat at the right moment when the seeds are crunchy and not overripening, so not so much alcohol. So I think the fresher, fruitier, rounder styles are in and they will continue for sure. Here, I like a lot the, the potential of the Albariño, the Pinot Noir, Rosé. We have started doing Method Champenois because of the natural acidity and the mineralities. It's really beautiful. We've already have had quite a few people say that the sparkling wine we're making here is like the best, the benchmark for South America. So that's, that's cool. It's promising. But it, when it comes to Tanat, I think that people are moving away from high alcohol, moving away from over oak, moving away from three weeks of skin contact after alcoholic fermentation, because you're inevitably going to have extraction of tannins, grain tannins on the seeds or, or whatever. So I think those are the main trends for Tanat. No, it's interesting to think about the, the new areas that are being explored in the country as well as uh, grape varieties. I've yet to try uh, an Alvarino from Uruguay, so I'm going to put that on my list of things to look up. And uh, definitely I'm a fan of you know picking at the right time and lower extractions, especially for a grape like Tanat. So great takeaways. Thank you so much, Christian. This is really helpful to talk about uh, Uruguay and Tanat and kind of uh, give the perspective as a premium producer from Bodega Garçon. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Robert, I follow you on your Instagram. It's pretty cool. Peter, great to meet you. And Whatever you need to put this together, or if you need an, another chat, it'll be, it'll be my pleasure. And, and I look forward to hosting you guys whenever traveling is back on. That'd and be great. Here, this is very right. different from the Uruguay you saw. It sounds like very, it. Very different. I just imagine cows when I arrive. <laughs> if there's, if there's four cows for every one person, I can't. Well, I, even, I, even if you're on the beach here in Ponte, Punta del Este or Jose Ignacio, as you drive here, the first 20, 25 minutes is sheep or cows, <laughs> maybe, but that's it. And then what's here? And all of a sudden you see this. But I would, I would, because we're all day on the bloody screen, when you have half an hour, look at the, it starts with wine pilot episode for, it's got a son, it's an Amazon Prime. It's an eye opener of what's going on here. We did that oof, three years ago already. Wow, great. Cool. I'll check it out. Well, thank you once again. You're welcome, guys. Thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. 